Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture by the spectator world. My name is Matt Purple, and I'm joined by Amber Athey. And today we're going to be talking about a record high here in the United States, and that is gas prices. They have never shot so high so quickly. Uh, Anyone who's been to the pump recently has surely been alarmed by what they've seen. According to AAA, the national gas price, that is the average nationwide, is about $4.25, which is a huge spike over last week. Uh, If you live in California, you're used to incredibly high gas prices to begin with because taxes there are so high. You're paying $5.57 for a gallon of gas. That's cranking up the national average, uh, but still Illinois, $5.52. Uh, pardon me, 452, uh, Connecticut 441. Uh, very a lot of pain at the pump for people right now. The Heartland doing a little bit better because again their taxes aren't as high. But you know an extraordinary issue. A lot of this, of course, is being caused by the war uh, in Ukraine and the disruption from the normal flow of oil out of Russia. Uh, but the White House, of course, is seeking to deflect political blame from themselves. They're saying that they've had nothing to do with this. Uh, they're dubbing this a Putin gas spike, uh, which is what Jen Psaki tried to call it yesterday. There's just one problem with that, and that is that gas prices have been going up for a while. This isn't really a new phenomenon. Uh, They've been spiking uh, since Joe Biden took office. There's a lot of reasons for that. Not all of them are his fault. But it does, it, it just... It elides over pretty easily that cancellation of the uh, the pipeline from Canada, doesn't it? And the you know the efforts against fracking by the EPA and so on. I mean, I certainly the administration deserves some blame for this. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you mentioned the Keystone XL pipeline. That's certainly one example of them being hostile to American energy independence, to fossil fuels. They've also banned drilling on federal lands and expressed that there would be potentially future bans on offshore drilling and potentially even fracking. That was something that Biden said during the campaign. And gas prices, at least in part, are driven uh, by predictions about the market. And when you have a president who has demonstrated and um, said rhetorically that he's not interested in the government supporting the fossil fuel industry and that they're going to fundamentally change the uh, economy and the environment to be uh, based mainly on green energy, it's not really surprising that gas prices were going up before this war. And Joe Biden and the Biden administration have tried to blame this on a multitude of factors. Um, First, they blamed the pandemic. Then he blamed OPEC. And the excuses have been running on and on. Um, The idea that this is solely due to what's been happening over the past couple of weeks we can confirm is not true based on the Biden administration's own actions. They released uh, you know, millions of barrels from the strategic oil reserve over the holiday to try to lower prices. Of course, at the time, they only released enough for a three-day supply um, for, pe- for Americans who get gas. But clearly, this has been a problem for a long time. Um, they've just now finally found the one excuse that it seems Americans are willing to tolerate Because there is a WSJ poll that found almost 80% of Americans, I think it's 79%, are okay with gas prices being a little bit higher in order to hold Russia accountable by banning oil imports. Um, So it seems Biden sort of found his get out of jail free card now for something that's been happening for quite a while. And I, I happen to agree with that. I, I'm willing to pay a little bit more at the pump for, you know, because what Russia is doing is so horrific. And I think that's an action, a consequence that has to be 
enacted. But at the same time, it's one thing to say that now in the abstract when you've maybe been to the pump once since the entire war began. Uh, let's fast forward to weeks, months, years of prolonged, much higher gas prices because they're still climbing, right? I mean, we could, the national average could very easily clear uh, $5, $6 if this continues, and it's going to because Putin is not going to pull out of Ukraine anytime soon. You know, let's go back and see, take the public's temperature when that happens. And I, I think they're going to, they're going to sour on this very quickly. I, I sometimes think that gas prices, high gas prices are the single most damaging political issue for whatever party is in power. Uh, we saw it because it, this is such a car culture in the United States and we're all dependent on gasoline and it really can hit you hard. And it's something that you have to you know, fill up once or twice a week. I mean, it's a very you know repeated payment, very common payment. Uh, you rewind to um, uh, the late 2000s, you know, 2006, <clears throat> when gas prices started going up uh, in the United States, that was, you know, very damaging to the Bush administration at the time. The Democrats tried to capitalize on that. Uh, this time it's going to be the Republicans capitalizing on it. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that the White House clearly understands the political risk of this because they're they're seeking to blunt it, right? They're seeking to spin and come up with their line. And I, you know, they are slightly damned if they do, damned if they don't. They have to take some action against Putin, but that is going to redound against them, even though it's not entirely their fault. Um, but like you were saying, this began long before they came to power, and some of this has to do with their own green environmental actions. Yeah, and to your point about how, you know, you suspect public support for this will wane the longer it goes on, that's going to be multiplied, I think, by the fact that the Biden administration hasn't really presented a plan for how they're going to try to offset at least some of those costs in the short term. Right now, so so far, they've been reaching out to places like Venezuela, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, even Iran, um, you know, trying to revisit the Iran deal. And it's I not it doesn't escape me that we are countering, you know, fascist dictator Putin by going and buying more oil by other, I think, equally as bad, if not worse, countries. And then there's been no shift to trying to regain American energy independence. Um, some of these green policies can't really be implemented for 20, 30, 40 years. And then in the meantime, you have uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg suggesting that the solution to higher gas prices is for Americans to just buy electric vehicles, which is nice if you have $30,000 to plunk down on a brand new car. But, you know, that's not a short term solution for many families. And it does take a while for an electric vehicle to recoup on the investment that you make in it. And I that was such a tone deaf moment from the Biden administration. It was basically the new version of the tragedy of the treadmill that's delayed. And I think that's really going to come back to haunt them as these prices continue to rise. Yeah, so then we can collapse the power grid and you know keep the the lithium mine slaving away. I mean, there, there's plenty of good that can come out of that. I suppose. Yeah, and uh, you know, allow China to exercise more power because they've been moving into Africa to take over the cobalt mines for decades. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it redounds to China's benefit too. I think this is such a moment of truth when it comes to energy. Right. Because, you know, we're seeing with the Europeans as well, Germany was going green. They were going to you know, be totally reliant on, you know, renewables, nuclear. But then they also got rid of that as well. Um, and instead, all they did was make themselves dependent on, on Russian oil, which they're now having to forego, which is going to cause them serious problems going forward. I think that has to be a very damning 
an indictment of Angela Merkel's legacy, right? She's the untouchable European. Nobody's allowed to, to question Angela Merkel. She led Europe through this incredibly difficult period. Well, maybe it is time to revise and, and reassess what she did uh, because she's left her country in a terrible position with, with their emaciated military too, by the way, uh, but also certainly with energy. And I'm also struck by what you said about the Biden administration reaching out to authoritarian countries like Venezuela, because you're right about that. But what about like Canada? You know what I mean? I I guess you could argue that Canada is an authoritarian country after the past month, but they're like right there. Um, And the premier of Alberta came out uh, today, actually, sorry, yesterday, and said that it wouldn't be too late to restart the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, Trans Canada, the company that that builds the pipeline, has contradicted that. They've said actually it would be very difficult to do it at this point. But nonetheless, isn't that something we should reopen? And and what reason is there for not doing that, other than Biden doesn't want to go back on on a policy that he put in place previously? You know, other than politics. So yeah, it's a real. It's all nice to get doe-eyed and airheaded about green energy and and we're going to save the earth and we're going to you know, I'll be driving electric cars by 2023. And in fact, at the end of the day, you know, when the rubber meets the road, the fact is that we need oil and we need gas. And the only question is, where is that going to come from? Yeah, I mean, fossil fuels are the cheapest, most reliable source of energy that we have. And nuclear power is something that, for whatever reason, the green energy crowd isn't interested in, even though it's remarkably clean. I believe it's the cleanest form of energy. And the reality is that in America, Wind and solar are not enough to power the entire country, even if you um, really maximize production. There's some places like West Virginia where you can't even use wind and solar because they're simply not reliable. The The climate there isn't attuned to those types of resources. Um, Alaska, the governor there, Mike Dunleavy, has already um, said that he's willing to ramp up oil production there to help offset some of the costs for the Biden administration. South Dakota is another place that has offered um, to provide some of that missing energy. And the Biden administration would be really remiss not to take them up on on that. Uh, we talked last week during our last podcast, Matt, and I think this is super timely and fitting about this debate that I was moderating between General Wesley Clark and Alex Epstein about uh, getting to a net zero carbon footprint by 2050. And what was so remarkable to me during this debate was that General Wesley Clark, who was um, arguing the affirmative that the United States should seek to get to a net zero um, carbon footprint, net zero CO2 emissions, admitted that there is a huge national security component to this and that it's basically impossible for the United States to ever reach that goal because there's simply no reliable or cost-effective energy solution that allows the U.S. to remain independent if necessary from some of these countries that are threatening it geopolitically. Um, So, I mean, he made the case for his opponent right there because he recognized that it is such a huge national security risk to go through with these massive green energy plans. It really is. And, you know, another question I have, I don't deny that there, that green energy is slowly, renewable energy is slowly becoming more efficient, more affordable. It's, it's a little bit more uh, practicable than it was practical than it was 
you know, 15 years ago, for example. But I guess my question is, why is it that in order to get there, and supposedly this green energy future is always right around the corner, we have to keep passing what are essentially massive federal bailouts for the green energy industry? I mean, the Obama stimulus all the way back in 2008 or 2009, excuse me, we're talking about now, that was a climate bill uh, disguised as a reconstruction bill, you know, that disguised as a recession bill. Um, what Obama wanted to do was to take uh, the old economy and transition it, rebuild it after the recession into something that was cleaner and more renewable. And uh, he didn't pull it off. In fact, he got completely blindsided by fracking, which he, his EPA wasn't really able to stop. So he did come back a little bit cleaner than we we did before. It was just because of fossil fuels rather than you know windmills sitting on hills in Pennsylvania. Uh, it, so that didn't really work. Now we've got Biden trying to you know, turn that lever again with Build Back Better, which is also a climate bill in disguise. Um, this just keeps coming and coming. We had the attempt at cap and trade legislation in 2009 to hobble fossil fuels. There's this constant attempt to try to throw the game to renewables. And again, I'm not denying that they have gotten incrementally uh, a little bit better. We could also throw in more extreme measures like Gavin Newsom trying to outlaw the gas-powered car by, I think it's 2025, uh, you know, at the state level. So all of this keeps happening and somehow people are still driving gas-powered cars. And somehow we've only made very incremental process. Right? This is just such, I think, a moment of realism, realism when we have to step back and we have to say, okay, how do you at the end of the day, you know, giant therapeutic uh, legislation sailing through Congress, notwithstanding, how do you heat somebody's home? How do you get somebody from point A to point B? And the fact that, you know, right now, even Biden is acknowledging the need to make sure that there is oil and there is gas, talking about opening the strategic petroleum reserves. Um, the, you know, the idea that somebody like Stephen Colbert, who's just demanding everybody drive an electric car, is getting laughed out of the room. Uh, I, I think that shows you where the momentum is. And uh, another thing that's worth pointing out, by the way, and we're going to try to commission a piece at The Spectator on this, is that the uh, green movement here in the United States has been funded by the Russians for a very long time, anti-fracking in particular. Uh, that has nothing to do with environmentalism. It has to do with the fact that it, the fact that it's in Russia's interest to try to hobble our domestic energy production industry. You look at all this and you wonder, what's going to happen to the green movement now? You know, it, it, this seems like a, a punch in the jaw, like a bucket of cold water in the middle of the night. Uh, you, you wonder where it goes. Yeah, um, definitely. And, and you know, going back to that debate, that admission from General Clark, I think really gave the game away. They really don't have a solution for what happens when America needs a quick, cheap, effective source of energy. Renewables just aren't there. And it would take massive, massive government intervention to get there, even in the next couple of decades. Um, and this is something that needs to be done now because we are facing this, again, national security crisis. I also find it interesting the Green Movement never talks about a lot of the mining that has to be done for not only the electric vehicles, but also solar and wind energy, because Obviously, the sun doesn't shine all day. The wind doesn't blow all the time. There has to be a way to store that energy so that it can be used later on. And that's done usually through batteries. And the materials for batteries, both for electric vehicles and for these solar and wind plants, 
come from mining, um, mostly in, in Africa and other countries with those types of natural resources. And so you're replacing one type of mining for another, and you're moving it out of the United States to um, you know, a third world country where these people are abused or their own workers aren't even given those jobs. A lot of times when China is going in to mine those uh, lithium materials, for example, they bring in their own employees and displace the people who actually live there. So if you're talking about being humane and renewable, I mean, that's not really a, a realistic answer. There's so many externalities to these um, things that the green energy movement is pushing that they don't seem to really understand. They kind of just have this pie in the sky idea of you put in a windmill and somebody gets power for the whole year. And there's a human cost to this in the United States as well, because if you don't have reliable energy, you're talking about people potentially freezing to death in the winter or overheating in the summer. Um, if they are without power for 10 to 15 percent of the time, which is what, stu what some studies have suggested could happen if we were to try to move our power grid solely to renewable, that is in a direct impact on people's ability to live. It really is that serious. Yeah. And I think that the bottom line here is that maybe there is a better solution than drill baby drill, than trying to pull our own fossil fuels out of the ground. Uh, but if there is, I, I haven't heard it. And it doesn't seem to be out there. I mean, I have, I have yet to hear anybody who's come up with something. Again, it, it really does just boil down to, like you said, let's take some of the most beautiful country that we have in this state and in, in, in this country in places like Pennsylvania and let's slap a bunch of windmills, hideous windmills on the horizon. <laughs> That's and, a good point. They're so ugly. <laughs> yeah. And these giant, you know, destructive, garish reflector mirrors on the roofs of every building. And, uh, and we still won't even be able to come anywhere close to our full energy needs. Again, I, I, if there's an idea out there than, than, other than drill baby drill that can suffice, I haven't heard it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.